Welcome to the Hill City Church Podcast. We are a church family located in Springfield, Missouri. You can learn more about us and support our ministries at hillcitysgf.org. Mark 14, starting verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and all the elders and all the scribes came together. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with many hands and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Yet even above their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do you need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him, deserving death. And some began to spit on him, cover his face, strike him, saying, Prophecy. And the guards received him with blows. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests had a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. You may be seated. Good morning. My name is Royce and I am one of the elders here at Hill City. Behind me you'll see a picture of uh, my family. This is a picture of my family. Just a few weeks ago we went to family camp. And summer camp has become a tradition for our family. And I love camp. Because every year, camp is this opportunity for us to try new things together, to face challenges together as a family. And this year, the new thing we tried, the new thing we faced was caving. So I I took my two oldest, Maylee and Rustin, and we went caving together. Uh, And and it was really great, actually. It was uh, tight at times. There is one portion of the cave that is affectionately referred to as the birth canal. So that was a little rough, but we made it through, and we got dirty, and so that's a win. But on the way home, on the way back to camp, actually, from the cave, uh, Rustin started coughing. And then as the day went on, that coughing turned into wheezing and then into trouble breathing. So Rustin has asthma, and this had all the makings of an asthma attack. So we got got back, got to our room, and, and I don't know what it is, there's something about when our kids get sick, my wife just springs into action. She goes like full mom mode. She has like this other gear. She gets all the inhalers out and she is ready to go. She sets an alarm for every couple of hours and she's ready to take care of him. But uh, unfortunately, he was up all through the night with, with trouble breathing. And so we just decided he would stay in our room the whole next day at camp. And he was just using his inhalers and he still wasn't getting any better. So thankfully, the next day, it was the last day at camp, 
So we packed up and we went immediately to see his pediatrician. So we get to the pediatrician's office, she listens to his lungs, and she's like, man, he sounds terrible. And so in the office, they do back-to-back-to-back breathing treatments, and finally, Rustin can breathe. He's finally able to turn the corner, and over the next few days, he starts to get his strength back. And it was something about just seeing him sick, seeing Rustin sick, was awful. And that's because as his parents, we want more for him. We want him to be able to breathe. And if you're a parent, you know the feeling, and probably moms more, more than anybody, there's nothing worse than seeing your child sick. And just like we want more for our kids, God wants more for his kids. He wants us to breathe on a deeper level. He wants us to be able to breathe at the heart level. He wants our hearts to be filled with peace and courage. And, that, and that's probably the best word for it is courage. Courage, it, it comes from this root core, which basically means heart. It's where we get the word coronary. It's the, it's the same root for courage. God wants his kids to have full hearts. He wants us to know, you know, he made us, he loves us, he cares about us, and so we can breathe. And we can know that we can face anything that comes our way. Any kind of trouble that comes our way, we can face it. Whether it's breathing trouble, family trouble, school trouble, work trouble, whatever it is, we can face it because he is with us. And today we come to this passage where the courage of Jesus is on full display, especially in contrast to the fear of those around him. So just like the rest of Mark, the path of our king is fast and furious. You know, things are happening quickly, immediately. And not only is there a lot of action or plot unfolding, but there's a lot happening behind the scenes and the hearts of the people involved. And so that's why this week we're actually looking at the same passage we looked at last week, but we're going to zoom in on a different group of people. Last week we looked at Peter. We zoomed in on Peter's heart. And if you weren't here, I'd encourage you to listen to it. Aaron did a great, great job as we looked at Peter. But this week we are going to look at the religious leaders or the priests. And so let's dive in. We'll start in verse 53. It says, And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. So we see a bunch of people here. The high priest, chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. And so this is the religious elite or or the Jewish leaders. And it's primarily a group of priests. So, So who are the priests? What is the main role of the priest? So, so God's design for a priest is pretty simple, actually. The, the role of a priest is to connect God with people. Connect God with people. And this actually goes all the way back to the beginning. Adam was the original priest. He lived in perfect communion, perfect connection with God in the Garden of Eden. In e- Eden, Eden is the Hebrew word for delight. 
So basically, there's nothing better, nothing more full of delight than being in the presence of God, than connecting with God. But then, of course, Adam sinned, and his sin corrupted the priesthood. So this connection was lost, this delight was gone. And God was grieved by this, but he wasn't surprised. And so he got to work. He got to this work of reconnecting with his people. And and this reconnecting work, it started with a family, and that was the family of Abraham. So God would meet with Abraham, he would talk with Abraham, and then after Abraham, it was Isaac and Jacob, and he would reconnect through this family. And over time, this became a formal priesthood through this family, through a tribe of this family, which is the tribe of Levi, there came the priest. So Levi is Abraham's great-grandson, and through the tribe of Levi, there were priests. And the function of this group of priests remained the same, connect God with people. And, And this was primarily done through a system of sacrifices offered in the temple. So the priests would offer sacrifices for the sins of the people to cover the sins of the people so that they could be right with God, so they could connect with God. But here's the thing. By the time Jesus comes along, the system is broken. And the system is broken because the people were broken. The high priest, the chief priest, the elders, the scribes, you know, they're the ones who are supposed to be closest to God and they had grown far from him. The ones who are supposed to know God the best don't really know him at all. And this disconnect from God had led to a disconnect from delight. You look at these men and they are not joyful people. This is a grumpy group of men who are making the lives of everyone around them miserable. And so Jesus comes on the scene, he sees what's happening, and he calls it out. And when Jesus calls it out, the priests don't like it. And we see it in verse 55. It says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. So notice what they're not seeking here first. They are not seeking the truth. They're they're not after the truth. They're after this testimony against Jesus so they can put him to death. So what we see is this is is personal. They're not just grumpy. They're angry. And they're angry at Jesus. They're mad at Jesus. So why? Like why are they so angry? Where did all this anger come from? Well, well, it's been building for a while. So, so let's look back. You know, in Mark chapter 2, we read this story of when Jesus meets a paralyzed man. And he tells this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. And then he heals this paralyzed man. And the priests, they see it and they don't understand it. They, they say, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And then later in this same chapter, Jesus tells his disciples, you know, it's okay. Go ahead and pick and eat some grain. Even though it's the Sabbath, you're hungry, pick and eat some grain. It's okay. And again, the priests, they don't like this. They don't get it. They say, look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And we see this pattern. This becomes a pattern. 
with every healing word, with every act of authority on the part of Jesus, their anger grows. And it reaches a boiling point when Jesus comes to Jerusalem. Jesus brings his authority to bear on their turf. And when Jesus comes to town, he goes straight to the temple and he sees that it's all wrong. And so he comes back the next day and he confronts the priests about it. This is what he says. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. He notices, he looks around, he's like, this place is sacred. This is the place where God connects with people. And he goes on and he says, but you have made it a den of robbers. They had made a mess of his father's house and Jesus won't stand for it. They had taken this place of delight and they had turned it into a den of thieves. And so when the priests hear this, they can't take it anymore. I imagine they're thinking, you know, no one comes into our house and pushes us around. And we see it in their response. Right after Jesus says this, it says, And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. And so now we get to the root of things. We start to see, you know, why all the anger? Well, the anger is there because the priests feared Jesus. The root of their anger is fear. What's happening is the priests are feeling threatened by Jesus. Because as they see Jesus, as they hear Jesus, they think, you know, they might lose their position. They might lose their power. They might lose their influence. And they love those things. They love their position. They love their power. They love their influence. And here's Jesus threatening to take it all away. And it reminds me of Gollum. I don't know if you guys remember Gollum from the Lord of the Rings. You know, he doesn't want anyone to touch his precious, right? He's all about his precious. All he wants is his precious ring of power. And that's a picture of the hearts of these priests. You know, Jesus had put his finger on their precious position and their precious power, and they felt threatened. But it actually goes even deeper. There's something even underneath that fear. And what's underneath that fear is lies. These priests had been believing lies for a long time. And it's lies that probably started something like this. You know, this position, this power, it's all yours. You earned it. You deserve it. And then the lies grow and it becomes, and so you're in charge. You know, God's not in charge of you or your position. You're in charge. And then finally, you know what? You, you actually, you don't really need God. You're doing just fine on your own. And it's really sad because these lies are eating away at them. It's like water dripping in a cave. I remember walking through that cave and seeing this huge gaping hole that had formed over time from the slow drip, drip, drip of water eroding at the rock. And that's exactly what's happening to these priests. The enemy is tearing a hole in their soul one lie at a time. And it's leaving them miserable. And they don't even realize it. 
And I think that is probably the saddest part is that these priests can't even see what's happening to them. And that's actually been a sobering thought for me as I've been preparing for today. You know, if the priests couldn't see what was happening to them, what am I missing? You know, what lies am I believing? So the other day I was at the gym. I've started going to the gym recently. I'm new at it. Uh, but they, I was introduced to this thing called a barbell rollout, okay? This was my first time ever doing a barbell rollout. It's, uh, it's like this ab exercise where you go back and forth like this. Anyway, I was new at it, but I felt like I was doing pretty good. I'm like, I'm a natural, I guess. I'm excellent at the gym. And, and so the uh, coach comes over to me. I'm like, wow, he notices. He sees me. He, he wants to tell me what a great job I'm doing. It's all good. Yeah, come on over. Um, so he comes over and he's like, no, actually, that's not why I'm here. Uh, he was actually there to help me uh, and correct my form a little bit. So I'm like, okay. He's like, actually, you have to bring your hips forward if you want to get anything out of this exercise. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, got this. So I bring my hips forward a little bit, and it is a completely different thing. It, it, a completely different exercise. I bring my hips forward, and uh, I could tell my abs were working in a way they had never worked before. Um, this exercise was a lot harder, and I could tell I was getting a lot more out of it. Um, because what had happened, what happened was my coach helped me gain some perspective. Because I couldn't see what I was missing on my own. What I needed was some perspective. I needed someone to tell me the truth. And I really need that. And, and not just in the gym. I need it in my marriage. I need it at home with my kids. I need it at work. I need the truth. I need someone who knows more than I do. Someone who can see things that I can't. Someone who wants more for me and who isn't afraid to talk to me about it. And that is exactly what the priests have in Jesus. But they can't see it. And they don't want any part of it. And that's where they stand as we go back to Mark 14. In verse 56, it says, Many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. So this is not going the way the priests planned. You know, all they wanted was some testimony that would condemn Jesus so they could put him to death. And they're not getting it. So eventually, the high priest gets impatient. And in verse 60, it says, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. He remained silent and made no answer. And I don't know about you, but this silence here used to bother me. I'm like, come on, Jesus Put them in their place. You know, defend yourself. And there are lots of reasons for his silence, and we'll look at that a little bit more in a few minutes. But I think for now, one reason is pretty practical. I think Jesus wants them to figure out exactly what it is 
they are accusing him of. He knows that they need to name it. What is the accusation exactly? And so finally, they get there. The high priest gets to this bottom line accusation. He, it says, again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And I imagine this high priest, like his stomach is churning in this moment. Like, I, I think he doesn't really want to ask this question. Because I think there's some part of him that knows it just might be true. But this is the question. This is the question Jesus has been waiting for. And so he answers this question and his answer is only 24 words, but it's packed with meaning. This is what he says. It says, and Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. First thing he says is, I am. You're asking, am I the Christ? I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. But he doesn't stop there. He then references two Old Testament passages that he knows the priests will recognize. And he knows they will stop them in their tracks. So first he says this part about the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And this is from Daniel. It's a a reference to Daniel 7.13 that says, In my vision I looked. And there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And if you read on in Daniel 7, you see that this is a prophecy of a coming king, a future king, a heavenly king. And this heavenly king is going to have a kingdom that lasts forever. So what Jesus is basically saying is, I am the king. And this is actually exactly what the priests needed him to say. Because if Jesus is claiming to be king, then that's offensive to Rome. Because in Rome, there's only one king, and that's Caesar. And if you claim to be king, then that is punishable by death. So this is exactly what they needed. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He actually adds one more thing. He says, he's seated at the right hand of power. So what's that about? Well, that is a reference to Psalm 110. So if we look at Psalm 110, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And it goes on. And in Psalm 110, verse 4, it says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It says you are a priest forever. So what Jesus is saying here is he's like, I I am not only the promised king, I am the promised priest. He says, I'm like Melchizedek. And and so Melchizedek is this mysterious figure in the Old Testament that that we don't have too much time to talk about him. But but for today, we just need to know that he was a priest and he was a king. So what Jesus is saying is, that's me. I am a priest and I am a king. I am a priest-king. And at this, we go to uh, verse 64, it says, And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? So the priests are furious because Jesus just told them, you know, there's a new sheriff in town, basically. He, he says, you know, I'm, I'm the one. I'm the priest. 
And for people clinging to their position and their power, this probably seems like bad news. But again, the sad thing is, as much as the priests think they don't want Jesus, they don't know what they're missing. It reminds me of of Jesus talking to the priests earlier on. We we see it in in John chapter 5. It's this time he's teaching and he can tell that the priests just don't get it. That They're not believing what he's saying. And so he just has to speak to their hearts for a second. He says, how can you believe? How, How could you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? What Jesus is telling him is is there's more. There's a better way. There's a better glory. There's a glory that comes from God. You don't have to cling to this human glory. You don't have to cling to this position and this power. You can actually let go of your position. And you can seek God instead. And really, this has always been the plan. The, The priests have always been space holders. Just holding that position until Jesus came. Hebrews, in in the book of Hebrews, we see that it's explained that this earthly priesthood was never meant to last forever. It's always been pointing to Jesus. In Hebrews 7, it says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood Permanently, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. So what this tells us is Jesus is the priest the priests really need. Because he is able to save to the uttermost. That gaping hole in their soul can be healed And not only that, the healer is here. He's standing right in front of them. But they can't see it. This this is the best news. This is really good news. But the priests don't see it that way. In verse 65 it says, And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. So let's go back. Let's go back to that question from earlier. How does Jesus endure all this? How does he remain silent? How does he stand there and love these people while they beat him, they mock him, they condemn him, and they spit in his face? Well, the short answer is this. Jesus knows his father. Jesus knows the one who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And since he knows his father, nothing else really matters. You you see, he has everything he needs from his father. So the priests have nothing they can really Offer him, and everything he has is secure in the Father. So there's nothing the priests can take away from him. So, in other words, Jesus stands before them completely unthreatened. 
And how nice would that be? You know, the priests, they're going crazy in this moment. And Jesus just stands there at peace. Because Jesus doesn't cling to anything except for his father. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus is in very nature God. Jesus is God. He has the ultimate position, the ultimate power. He's God. But then in the next breath, it tells us, but he does not consider equality with God a thing to cling to. He doesn't consider his position or his power something to cling to because Jesus didn't cling to his position. He fixed himself to his father. And by fixing himself to his father, he fixed himself to the truth. So back, all the way back at the beginning of Mark in chapter 1, Jesus is baptized. And we hear this voice. This voice comes from heaven, and it's the voice of the Father. And this is what the Father says. He says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. What the Father says is, you are my son. I love you, and I delight in you. And so Jesus, he responds to, this, to his father by living this life that says, you are my father. I love you and I delight in you. And we see it in everything Jesus says and everything Jesus does. And we might, we might see it the most in the way Jesus prays. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. And this is what he says. He says, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He says, Father, I love you. I delight in you. I want your kingdom. I want your will. And we see it in another prayer. In John 17, Jesus is praying over his disciples and over everyone who will ever believe in him. And as he's praying, he's remembering that all he has is a gift from his Father. It's all a gift. It's not earned not achieved, everything he has is a gift. And he uses this phrase, he, he says this phrase, you have given me, this beautiful phrase. It appears 13 times in this prayer. And we're just going to look at a few here towards the end of the prayer. He says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one as we are one. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. What Jesus is praying, what Jesus is saying, he, Jesus knows that the Father has given him everything he needs. And because of this, Jesus operates from this place of deep security. Because of this, Jesus is filled with courage. Jesus' heart is full. His heart is so filled with the love of the Father, the delight of the Father, that there's no room for fear. He has no fear. It's like David says in Psalm 16. He says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. He says, I set you before me, you're with me, I can't be shaken. 
And what a stark contrast we see between Jesus and the priests. You know, we think back to the priests, and the priests, they had basically stopped looking at God. They, they had turned away from God, and they started believing these lies. And these lies left them riddled with fear. And so they're sad, they're angry, and afraid. And then we have Jesus, always looking to the Father. He knows the love of his Father, the delight of his Father. And so he lives this life of courage. He's at peace and he can breathe. And the good news is the story doesn't stop here. From here, Jesus goes to Pilate and then from Pilate to the cross and he faces the cross with courage. Hebrews tells us that Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. And the word for scorn, it means to think nothing of. Jesus thought nothing of the shame. He thought nothing of the suffering because his heart was filled with courage. So Jesus endured the cross. And he did it to set us free. So for the last few months, we've been talking about this path, this path of the king. And as Jesus has been walking this path, he has been blazing a trail for us to follow. He lived this life of courage to make a way for us to live with courage. If you're serving communion, please go ahead and get ready. So a little over a month ago, on June 11th, Max Park broke a world record. And if you're not aware, the world record he broke, he broke it by solving a Rubik's Cube in less than four seconds. Believe it or not, Max solved a Rubik's Cube in 3.13 seconds. And a documentary recently came out on Netflix that tells Max's story. And in the documentary, it talks about how Max was diagnosed with autism at the age of two. And his parents uh, are in the documentary, and they talk about how hard it was. They talk about what it was like when he was first diagnosed. And they talk about how they felt like they had lost their future. How autism had created this distance from their son, and they felt like they would never be able to connect with him like they had always imagined they would. Because Max didn't talk to them. He wouldn't look them in the eye. It's like he was always in his own world. And for his parents, it was devastating. They talk about how they would just sit on the edge of their bed and cry. But then they decided to get to work. One day, Max's mom, she sees Max, he, he's over there, he's off in his own little world, and she decides that she's just going to get down on his level, and whatever he does, she's going to do the same thing. So if he stands up, she's going to stand up. If he lies down, she's going to lie down. If, if he sits up, she's going to sit up. If he spins around, she's going to spin, spin around. Whatever he does, she's going to do, because she wants Max to know that she is going to be with him no matter what. And finally, after a while, Max starts to see what's happening, and he looks up at his mom, and he takes her hand. 
and he starts to play with her. And she talks about how this was a breakthrough moment because Max started to open up his world. And it was awesome because Max started to come alive. And what we see with Max's parents is a picture of the gospel. Jesus came down and he got into our world. He got on our level. He came to be with us. He came to connect with us. And it's awesome because in him, through him, with him, we come alive. It reminds me of 1 John 4.18. 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. He finds fear taking up space in our hearts and he kicks it out because it has no business being there. The author of Hebrews encourages us. He says, let us throw off everything that hinders, the lies, the fear, the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. How? How can we do that? How do we run this race? It says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. We fix our eyes on our king. We fix our eyes on our priest who came to be with us. He knows what we're going through because he has been through it, but he doesn't only know it, he can heal it. He saves to the uttermost. So let's fix our eyes on him and let's take courage. Let's pray.